while the rest of us are in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, let me get my stuff together here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four gospel accounts of one gospel. They each don't have a gospel, there's only one, his name is Jesus. And we'll turn to Luke, account of the gospel. We are in chapter 2. We're actually going to wrap up uh, chapter 2 this morning um, as we have been looking at this book together, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Luke began this orderly witness, his eyewitness account, uh, with two announcements, right, and two births, two babies, the birth of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. Although we said there's some similarities, um, Angel Gabriel and a few other things, uh, the, the, the emphasis has been Christological, clearly, and that John was raised up to prepare the way for the Lord with, with a, a baptism of repentance. We'll see that next week. Yet Jesus himself has come. He was not filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, although we, we know uh, that Jesus, the Holy Spirit will come upon him on baptism, but he has been uh, um, conceived by the Holy Spirit. John will be great before the Lord, Luke tells us, but Jesus is great in and of himself as the son of the most high God. Christological, uh, who the reality of who Jesus really is, is what Luke is getting at. Beginning with his name, Jesus means God is salvation. He is the eternal king who's reigning and ruling over an eternal kingdom. He's called holy, the son of God. This is in the first two chapters. He is the horn of salvation. He's the deliverer. He's the redeemer. He's called the covenant promised one. He is the one who will forgive sins. He's the light to those in darkness. He's the Savior. He's Christ. He's the Lord. He's the consolation of Israel. He's the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's a light to the revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. He's the one who will cause the fall and rise of many. He's the one who, is the, who will be the opposition to a dark and rebellious world. That's just, again, in just the first two chapters of who Jesus is. Our text this morning in Luke chapter 2 is really a transition from this birth announcements uh, and this birth that actually took place narrative uh, to the preparation of Jesus' ministry, his baptism, his, his temptation in the wilderness. We'll see that coming up. But in between the birth announcements, the preparation for ministry, we have this text before us, a very interesting text of Scripture. It's the only place in all of the Word of God where we see something of the childhood of Jesus. Some of you may be well aware of the false writings, some of the what's called the hypocritical gospels in the second, third, fourth, and fifth century. The stories of Jesus, I think they made a movie about it now that I think about it, uh, when he was young. He was playing by, by, by the sea and he was bored and he fashioned uh, pigeons out of dirt and and he did a hocus pocus and they came alive he was he was bored he had nothing to play with and he gave he gave life to these birds that were made out of uh, dirt there's another story that Jesus was enraged over a young boy who, who came along and saw Jesus uh, gathering a pool of water and he and he messed with it and Jesus was just enraged and he told him you will be withered all the days of your life silly stories like that there's one story that's really famous. Maybe you heard of it before. Uh, Jesus is walking by a dyer's shop, the one who dyes uh, uh, leather and, and different material. 
And as Jesus is walking by the shop as a young boy, he walks into the shop and he takes all the clothes and dumps it in a, a cauldron full of indigo. The owner flipped out because the clothes were ruined. And the owner said to Jesus, what have you done to me, son of Mary? You have ruined my reputation in the eyes of all the people of the city for everyone orders a suitable color for himself. But you have come and spoiled everything. And of course, the snot-nosed Jesus had said in return, I will change for you the color of any cloth which you wish to be changed. And immediately began to take clothes out of the cauldron. Each one died as the one in which the dyer wanted colored. In other words, what do you want? Blue next? Here's blue. Here's green. And as he pulls it out, this, this fanciful, magical, silly stories really is silly of Jesus' childhood. That is in a profound, profound contrast of this story. Hocus pocus Jesus. We have this simple story of age 12. Our scripture lesson, I started in verse 39 because I want to see something there. But it's very simple. Luke is going to show us that Jesus at 12 is human. Jesus is human. Then we see that Jesus is missing. Can't find him. Then Jesus is found. We found the young lad. And when we get to chapter, when we get to the end of this text, we really get to the point of the whole passage that Jesus is God's son. That's the thrust. That's, that's the point of this narrative. Okay? So first, let's see that Jesus is human. Verse 39. Well, I want you to first notice with me, if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do. In chapter 2, verse 40, it says, Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Okay? Luke is showing us, he's continuing to show us in detail about the uniqueness of this God-man, and now he's emphasizing his humanity. We've seen earlier in the titles, he's the Lord, he's the Christ, he's the Eternal One, the Son of the Most High, and here he's stressing his humanity. Luke, Luke, wants to make, Luke, Luke wants to make clear to us the physical, intellectual, spiritual, and relational development of Jesus, the Son of God. God, we saw earlier in the beginning of Luke, made it very clear. He was a boy, a, a human baby born to a virgin girl named Mary. And this baby obviously had to do what? Grow. Right? Physically, right? The baby born in the major had physical needs like any other infant child needed. An infant, as an infant, Jesus woke up in the middle of the night, Right? Can we, can we testify right in the middle of the night? Hungry. He needed to be burped. He needed to be changed. Like any other baby, he relied upon his, his, his mom and dad for food and for nourishment. He had to crawl before he could walk. He had undergone all the physical maturing that boys go through. Probably puberty as well as his voice changes. He got older. Maybe he scraped his knees a few times while he was playing with, with the other boys out in the field. As an adult, we know the scripture tells us that Jesus experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. He had an uncorrupted emotional life exhibiting pure love, pure compassion. 
He got angry. He got sorrowful. He was joyful. But he grew here, he says, in wisdom, that is intellectually, reverence toward God and in God's favor, God's grace, the object of God's special attention. Now, he didn't need grace because he was a sinner. He's sinless, but God's special Love and grace was upon him. God the Son took on the intellectual, physical limitations, God the Son, as all humans have. I believe that's what Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. How? By taking on the form of a bondservant. He took on humanity. God took on Flesh, that's the incarnation. He took on human form. And, and within the incarnation, what we see here in this, in, this, in this growing of Jesus, there's mystery. In some mysterious way, the, the God who became a man limited the expression of his divine nature. I think MacArthur likes to say that. The expression or the independent expression of his deity. It is passages like this, and I'll give you a $5 word to let you know that I was studying this week, called a hypostatic union. Some of you have heard of it before. Hypostasis is the Greek word for substance, individual existence. The hypostatic union is when we talk about the dual natures of Christ, that Christ was fully God and fully man. One man, two natures. I tackled this years ago when I was in school, and as I was studying about the dual nature of Christ, there's a lot of ink spilt on this. But I also came to realize, I'm going to share with you this morning, that there are some serious heresies and some very deep errors that have you know, come up because of this doctrine, this truth about the dual natures of Christ. Some people say that Jesus Christ has a divine nature, and it swallowed up the human nature, that he only really had one nature. He wasn't really human. He was simply divine. Some say that Jesus was actually two persons acting in different ways. Jesus was born into a human race, but his divine nature was received later on. And at some point in Jesus' life, usually at baptism or something else, he became divine. Or that Christ's human body really was just a shell. The Gnostics taught that. But inside this shell, this, this, this was deity, that his, that his body was impersonal. Fortunately, this heresy and this, this trying to understand the mystery of the incarnation really came to a head in, believe it or not, 451 A.D. And it's, they had a council together, so let's talk about this dual natures of Christ being fully man and fully God. It was the Council of Chalcedon, chapter, uh, 451 A.D. And you know what? Their conclusion 1,600 years ago is still brilliant and held to many churches today. It didn't explain the full detail of how Jesus could be fully God and fully man. But one thing this, you can go look it up, go read it this afternoon. One thing it did do for us is it, that, it, that it gave this mystery of the incarnation some parameters, some boundaries to understand. You see, there are mysteries in Scripture. And when we try to go and, and try to f understand in full detail, I need to know everything about this mystery of the incarnation. And sometimes when you do that, you could step very closely, if not fall off the edge of truth into heresy. You have to be careful. Whether it's the nature of the Trinity, that's a mystery to some degree. 
One God, three persons, or the miracle of the incarnation, there has to be a category in your brain, in my brain, that there's some things that are mystery that are unknowable. I mean, think about it this way. I was thinking about it this week. How could you know everything there is to know about God? How could you know about all the mysteries and the deep, the, the deep things about God? The one who, who knows every single thought and every single mind and every single motive and every single heart in every single person in the entire world all at the same time and think that there can't be any mysteries. Right? To think we can know the full detail of everything that God knows and does when he holds every star in its galaxy, in its place, at the same time, who purposes every atom, every molecule, sovereign over every action of the entire universe at all times, to know that we need to know all the mysteries. It's pride, it's arrogance. If we're going to the worship, if we're going to worship this God who revealed himself in this word, there has to be a category of mystery. There has to be. But that does not mean he has not revealed through, uh, through his word enough truth that he has given his word to us, the self-revelation of who he is. He's smart enough to write a book that we can't understand, at least comprehend in our puny minds enough to know him, to have an intimate and personal relationship with him. He has. And that's why I think as this church gathered together in 451 A.D. and said, you know what, let's put some parameters so we don't fall into heresy, still stands today. And I, I have some, some of it for you. It's, it's a lot longer than this. But let me just read to you what they, what they decided. Again, parameters about the dual natures of Christ. All of us teach unanimously that everyone must confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is one single and same Son who is perfect according to divinity, and perfect according to humanity, truly God and truly man, composed of a, ras a reasonable, that's relational, a rational soul and body, consubstantial, which just simply means substance, essence, okay, consubstantial with the Father, according to divinity, and consubstantial with us, according to humanity, completely like us, except for sin, one single and same Christ, the Son, the Lord, our only begotten, known in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The difference in no way suppressed by their union, but rather the properties of each are retained and united in one single person and single hypothesis, that substance. He is neither separated nor divided into two persons, but he is single and the same only begotten Son, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. I know that's a lot. But I, I wanted you to hear the parameters. And you could see Scripture throughout the parameters. Just say, listen, let's not get further than what the Scriptures teach. And there's a lot going on today in 2022. Where people want to add more to Scripture... Maybe bring in, uh, Pastor Chris and I were talking about this week, some philosophical understanding. Be careful, family. I'm not saying we shouldn't study. I'm not saying you shouldn't understand. But be careful. Don't go beyond what God has made known to us according to his word. Does that explain everything? No. You know what? You won't understand it all. Otherwise, you'd be God and you're not. Okay? 
And which each negative assertion here, no mixture, no confusion, no separation, they were putting to rest all the heresy that was being taught in that day and today. And when they affirmed, vera homo, vera duas, duas, truly man and truly God. They were affirming Jesus Christ. We don't understand all. Born as a baby. Had to be fed, changed, burped, learned to crawl before he walked. We don't understand it all, but we know he is fully God and fully man. That's what the scriptures teach. And Luke is trying to show us that. Even, and, and, and Luke's also trying to show us in verse 39, remember we said last week, Joseph and Mary performed everything according to the law of the Lord. And, 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 they, and they went to Jerusalem every year of the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they came according to the custom. You see what he's saying? They were law-abiding Devoted to their God. That's what Mary and Joseph were. They followed the commands. They were, they were, they were seeking and, and, and loving and devoted to their God. What Luke wants to tell us too, we'll see this later on, is that Jesus was not crucified because he didn't obey the law. He was crucified because he fulfilled the law and claimed to be God. He didn't break the civil law. He didn't break the moral law. He didn't break the Jewish law. He fulfilled it completely. And here he is at 12 at the Passover. You know what this Passover, right? Celebration, uh, remembering and, and recounting the miraculous delivery that God's people were in bondage in Egypt. And we know that, uh, that it led to the exodus. The angel came down, you know, on the, on the 10th plague. It was dark. And the angel came down. And every single firstborn son in the land was dead. Every single son, Jew or Egyptian, except if they took shelter under the blood of the lamb. That's what they're there celebrating. And it was celebration that was mandated for the Jewish men to actually go to Jerusalem during that feast. Feast lasted a week, Passover one day, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the following week. Joseph could have went by himself, but the scripture says that he went up each and every year, most likely with his wife, Mary, to Jerusalem. Now, we're not sure if the, Jesus went every year. We don't know. But one of the things we need to know as we read this text is that he's 12. That's important. Because when Jesus was 13, he would have been bar mitzvah. He would have been considered a son of the law. He would have had full membership in the synagogue. Here he is, 12, one year before all that. In fact, when the Bible here says, went up according to custom, there are a lot of, of, of writings in antiquity that said the rabbis would would. Would, would, uh, would teach the parents, the fathers particularly, when your son is 12, take him to Jerusalem. Show him. Before he gets by but show him what it means to, to celebrate the rituals of Passover. And this 12-year-old boy, a year before he's by mitzvah, becomes son of the law, becomes uh, a part of the member, uh, a member of the synagogue, Filled with excitement, I'm sure, brought along to observe and learn as much as he could about that one incredibly defining moment of the Exodus. It was a year that he would learn what a man was to be. He would have gone up to the temple and he would have sang songs and, and prayers and, 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 and uh, sing the psalms. On the night of the Passover, they would gather together to worship with his family, as the lights are flickering in, in, in a dark room, the meal, uh, the Passover lamb eaten, the Passover liturgy 
uh, with, with hand washing and uh, the Hillel Psalms being sung. And at one point, the, the father would turn to the son. It could have been Jesus that day and ask the ceremonial question, why is this night different from all other nights? That would, that would be the question the son would ask the father. And the father then who's preparing the sacrificial lamb will go into a moving story of, of, of Israel's night that took place when they slaughtered the lamb, put the blood over the doorstep, and the angel of death came over and every firstborn in the land was dead except those that took shelter under the lamb. Joseph would remind his eldest son how God rescued them. I mean, think about that. How God rescued his people from slavery and delivered them from the death in Egypt. Jesus, the Redeemer, hearing the story of Passover. And Luke is so cool because at the end, he brings up the Passover one more time at the end of this gospel account. And it's not about the death uh, uh, that will pass over the firstborn. It will be the firstborn in his death. As he dies on the cross, the greater liberator, the greater redeemer, the greater salvation. And as you know, as you can see in this passage, Mary and Joseph were committed to, were committed to worshiping. And the responsibility given to them as we as parents to teach them the things of God. To bring them in corporate worship, to show them what's, what's important, what really matters. As the scriptures become more and more alive, and they are living out the gospel, showing them the gospel, showing we are to show our children the gospel, live it out, teach them, and show them what's priority in our lives. When we stop work, when we stop play, and we just gather together, it is a matter of worship. You know, we can't guarantee, right, family? We can't guarantee what our adult children are going to happen to them. We can't guarantee they'll come to faith. We wish we could. I know. I wish I could. But one thing we can teach them is our priorities. Show them, teach them, live out the gospel. And the priority that we say, you know what? We're going to worship, regularly worship, serve, and worship the king together. Jesus is human. Next, Jesus is missing. Verse 43, verse 40 through 45. Imagine Jerusalem, 200, 300, 400,000 people are gathering from all over the place to gather in Jerusalem. City is packed. Merchandise has been coming in weeks before. The walled city is, is being squeezed out. Every available inch taken. Merchants, uh, beggars, animals, Thousands upon thousands of animals being brought into the city. Many people we know from Jesus' triumphal entry had to stay outside the city along the road. There was tents out there because there was no room in the city anymore. And what would happen in that day is if you were coming from Galilee, let me even say Nazareth, you would gather with other villages in your area and you would travel together. So maybe Nazareth came with Capernaum or, or Cana and they would come down and the custom was that they would come as a large caravan together. And part of the reason, because it was dangerous. If you came with just a few folks, you can get robbed, you can get beat up along the way. So they would, they would, they would have a, a large caravan uh, keeping watch over one another and Many commentators say the women would go ahead, the children would be with the young ones, with the mothers, maybe the not so young in between, and the men would, would, would come behind to make sure everybody was safe along the way. 
And we keep watch. What is also interesting to note here is that they must have trusted their 12-year-old son. Neither one of them had him with them. He had liberty to travel back and forth, maybe with friends or relatives. Look at verse 44. Joseph and Mary thought Jesus was in the group of people that arrived, and they began to search for him among their what? Relatives and acquaintances. It's very possible that Jesus, uh, excuse me, Mary's like, oh, yeah, his father got him. And then the father's like, yeah, I'm sure he's with his mom. And off they go. Right? Evening comes the first night. They've gone about 25, 20, 25 miles. They've got a four-day journey. It's about 80 miles away. They're going to stop three, three times. And they're all gathering together as the sun is going down. And, and you know, it's the first Home Alone story. <laughs> Jesus is not there. There have been stories where, you know, you've got both parents coming to church, two cars. You get home, like, yeah, you got a little guy? No, I, I, he's still at the church. <laughs> I got permission to tell the story. My sweet wife was uh, on, the, on the end of that when seven children in a station wagon. Some of you young people don't know what station wagon is. Look it up. <laughs> seven kids. Everybody piled in, left the store, got down the street, and someone said, where's Mary? She's not in the car. Spun around right back to the store, and there's Mary looking out the window like, is anybody coming back for me? <laughs> can, we, can we sympathize with these parents? Have you ever lost a child just even for a moment? Maybe in a playground, maybe in a department store. And one of my kids was really young, hiding behind a, you know, a, a, a coat that was hanging. Like panic, right? Answer the anxiety that... He's the eternal son of the living God, right? You know, the one that the angel said, he's the savior of the world. Really? The whole world? Yeah. King, ruling, reigning over the entire world. That child's missing. You can imagine the panic. Has anybody seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? When's the last time you saw him? You know, you, you could only imagine the parents stressed out. I mean, Simon said earlier that Mary's heart uh, it will be pierced. I think it began right there, right? You can imagine the mother's heartache. She realizes he's a day away. I'm not going to jump in my car and be there in 15 minutes. I got to sleep, wake up, and go. Maybe he got lost along the way. I mean, you don't know, right? Now, I don't want to go too far here, but have you ever had that kind of panic? What's, the, what's one of the first things you do or you should do? One of my daughters was lost when she was older in, in another country, Pray, right? I think I heard someone say pray. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph's prayer? Lord, <laughs> yeah, it's Mary and Joseph, you know, the one you entrusted with your beloved son. Yep, that's us. We can't find him. Please, Lord, we know you're sovereign. You know exactly where he is. We, this won't happen again if we could just find the boy. I mean, what do you say? Notice it says that Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And one of the questions is, well, did he disobey his parents? Did he see the caravan getting all together, see his mom and dad, and then run the other direction? Was he so caught up? Was he so rambunctious that he chose to disregard his parents and stay in the city? I, I don't think so. I think Luke is very careful to tell this story. 
He's not blaming anyone. He's simply telling the historical facts of what took place. Remember, Luke began this and ends with God's commendation of how Jesus is maturing and has favor with God and growing in wisdom. Second, we know, according to the rest of Scripture, that Jesus was without sin. He never sinned. Jesus uh, asked his critics, those who would love to find something wrong with him, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And there was crickets. Nobody could. His mother, his family, his brothers, his sisters, nobody could. In fact, John 8, 29, Jesus says, I always do what pleases the Father. The New Testament, all the New Testament, our salvation itself rests upon the sinlessness of Christ. We mentioned that last week. The writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. The Apostle Peter defined Jesus' sinlessness by saying, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. John, the Apostle, 1 John 3, 5, and in him is no sin. Paul would go on to say the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5. To say that Jesus sinned by disobeying his parents contradicts Jesus himself, all the apostles, and all of Scripture. Ligon Duncan is a great, great, I think he's a wonderful theologian, pastor. He mentioned when he was in Luke 2 that when you read Scripture, a lot of times when there's something happening or someone's sinning or something's really, something's really happening to someone, they're, they're, they're about to make a big uh, sin really fall flat on their face. There's, there's clues. There's, there's uh, pictures. There, there's, there are things that you know like, all right, something's going to happen. And he mentions 1 Samuel 11. We went through Samuel together. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 11 before David, King David uh, sinned against Bathsheba. It says this. At the time when kings go out to war, David remained in Jerusalem. It's like, oh, there's a problem. Every king is out to war. And what is David doing? He's not going. Something's not right. Then it goes on to say, and he arose early one afternoon. <laughs> like, all right, you're staying in late, lazy, still in bed, not going out where everybody goes out, and then we know what, ha- we know what happened, right? Adultery, murder, lying, cheating. None of that is here. No hint of it whatsoever. In fact, jump down to verse 51 with me. It says that Jesus went down to Nazareth and was submissive to his parents, that verb submissive, uh, imperfect passive, it means he was continually submissive. In other words, he was before and he was until, well, he was always, but he was before. And then for the next 18 years, until he's 30, until he's out on his own in public ministry, he was submissive. Not sinful, submissive. Kent use. The point is, Jesus was capable of unknowingly causing his parents distress, but as a sinless being, he was incapable of knowingly doing it. Here, Jesus unknowingly brought anxiety to Joseph and Mary. Moreover, he unintentionally caused his parents to worry because his 12-year-old mind was so totally absorbed with the massive spiritual realization of his identity as the Messiah that he had come to know that week, end quote. What a story. See how contrast this story is? I mean, why would you put this story in here unless it was true? Why would you do it? But Jesus is human, Jesus is missing, and Jesus is found. After three days, verse 46, some ambiguity, ambiguity there. Not three days in Jerusalem. I don't think that's the case. 
I don't think they got back to Jerusalem and it took three days to find Jesus. I don't think that's the case. I think after three days we found out he was missing. Get the one day out, the one day back, and on the third day they found Jesus in the temple. That's what I think happened. I mean, Jerusalem, not that big. The festival's over. It's not in New York City. Three days they find him. Where? In the temple. What's he doing? Well, imagine you're the parent for a moment. And you're coming into the walled city. Maybe you're with a few people. Maybe some people came back. I don't know that to be true. But let's just say that cousin's answer. You know what? We'll come back and help you. What would you do? All right. I'll tell you what. You hit the playgrounds, right? You hit the marketplace. He loved to eat. You might be there. Hit the theaters. Like, let's, let's look. They're looking everywhere. And then they find them in the temple. Sitting among the teachers. That was the custom that they would sit. Students would sit there, teachers, and they would, this back and forth, this questioning and answering dialogue with their mentors, with their rabbis. The temple would be the place to go to debate theology. It was probably in the outer court somewhere. There are a lot of places. The temple's a big place. A lot of rabbis, a lot of teachers, a lot of theologians would gather there, and they would talk and discuss with people. And here we see Jesus talking with, discussing with the teachers, back and forth. It will only happen once. Because when he comes back, he's rebuking them. He's calling them into account. He, he, is, he, is, he is rebuking them, he's correcting them, he's confronting them. And some may be the same men. They may be the same 18 years later, may be the same men teaching. We don't know. Obviously, at a thirst for the word of God. Obviously, Luke is saying this 12-year-old Jesus already shows signs of possessing great wisdom. This, this blessed child, this unique, amazing uh, wisdom that this 12-year-old, this sinless, intellectual, well-versed in scripture, no doubt receiving insight from the father. They were amazed. He would have says amazed. One of Luke's favorite words to use when, with the wonder of God, when God does wondrous, miraculous gospel things. They're amazed at, at Jesus' understanding, the questions, the answers. His parents, though, were not amazed. Look what it says. They were astonished. <laughs> Different word. That's stressed. <laughs> they were astonished. They, 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 they were exasperated. They're still trying to figure out who this Jesus is. Lack of understanding shows how difficult it is sometimes to, to really grasp the king of kings, the, this, this God-man. Even though they experienced his miraculous birth, you see, you see Mary and Joseph throughout the scriptures still trying to come to grips with who Jesus really is, who really is. And you know, we got to be careful. There's some of you here, and including myself to some degree, We'll never understand everything there is to know and understand about Jesus. And, and if we're honest, God has made things clear to us like seven times, right? I'm back around, back around. Yeah, I made it really clear. Yeah, I didn't get it. I didn't get it the first time. Like, we can't be so harsh on Mary and Joseph. It seemed not to be getting it. If they understood, I think they would have they they understood uh, uh, more of the mission and better understand why Jesus was at the temple when he was. But Mary says to him in verse 48, why have you treated us so? What, what kind of son hangs out in Jerusalem? We will worry to death. You, your father and I have sought you in great distress, pain, grief, worry. 
Notice she doesn't, notice that she does ask him a question. She comes out with why. And then notice Jesus answers the question with a question. Right? First recorded words of Jesus in the scripture. Why? Why have you treated us so? Why are you looking for me? What are you, what are you so anxious about? Why is it so hard? Why was it so hard to find me? Don't you know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus is not surprised that they came back and got him. He's only 12. Jesus is surprised at why they were looking all over the place for him when he said, I'm in my father's house. I'm, I'm the son of God. Verses 49 through 51 really get to the crutch of it. God's son. Don't you understand, he says? I'm not trying to defy you. I'm not being defiant of your authority. But I'm compelled to be where? In my father's house. In the temple. And Luke records Jesus calling the, the house of God, uh, the temple, the house of God in Luke chapter 6. And then in chapter 19, Jesus goes into the, into the temple, if you remember the story, and he is overthrowing money changers, tossing people, and Jesus says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Notice 48, in verse 48, you, you, you know, you, there's a lot of moms in this room, you know, so your father and I, we're looking all over for you. And notice his response. He says, I, I'm not talking about Joseph's house. I'm talking about God's house. Yes, Joseph was my earthly father by adoption, but I had to be here because this is where my heavenly father wanted me to be. And in that simple yet monumental sentence, this, this 12-year-old boy demonstrates profound understanding of his identity and his purpose right here. Listen, Jesus exhibits a strong sense of his identity with his father. And we uh, see here he is committed to the mission to hear from God, to do what God has called him to do. He knows he's the son of God. No one else speak, spoke that way with that kind of intimacy in that day. Not even all the Old Testament. He's making clear that the father's business is my business. The father's house is my house. All right? He's not being offensive. He's not being rude and disrespectful. We know that. He goes home humbly, and he submits to them, as I said in verse 51. He's making it clear that his first priority is the father. He wants to hear God's voice. He wants to know God's mission over all other things. If you look up in the Old Testament and you look up the word father as God being father, what you'll find is no one, not even Moses, not even David, do, does that kind of intimacy calling him my father. Many times when you read about that, it's referring to our father, the nation itself. Well, Jesus talking about my son. But what you don't find is this fatherhood in the Old Testament where someone goes in the quietness and the intimacy of one's relationship with God and says, my father. But that all changed here. See, then it was more of a general concept more than, than, a, than a personal relationship. But Jesus seems to just 
just flows from his lips. He looks at his parents and says, I'm about my father's business. I'm about my father's house. I'm about my father's mission. I'm here to speak and to worship my father. Jesus was where he was supposed to be. This obedience to his heavenly father will, will be put to test as he is drawn, brought out into the temptation we'll see in the, in the next couple of weeks. Not sinning against his parents. He was exactly where he ought to be, and he's saying to them, you should have found me right here with my father. Okay, that's what he's saying. And he's declaring the necessity of being in God's house, God's presence, God's instruction, God's people. Jesus knows who he is, and he must be about his father's business. I must be. That, that, that word, that Greek word is, is a necessity. I, I show resolve. I, I'm, I'm recognizing his sovereignty, and I'm recognizing that I need to be here. And his unique relationship that he has shows his calling, his mission, and the intimacy that God the Father had with God the Son. So therefore, the first recorded words of Jesus, the recognition of his unique relationship. Look at verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So Jesus, after this incident, is going back to Nazareth, going back to the wood shop, and obeying his parents. And as he lived his life, he obeyed completely his mom and dad under their authority. He willingly, humbly obeyed their God-given authority over him. That's what the scripture says. And we, and we now see that although Mary was early exasperated, it says here that she, what, treasured them. She, she kept them. She remembered all these things in her heart. Third time Luke says that. I think he got it from her. Mary may have not completely understood everything that was going on in that moment, but she will. And Mary will ultimately lose the child given to her by God to gain him as the Savior. This is Luke's way of saying... To us, do you, do you treasure him? Do you keep him? Do you, do you remember him? Do you, do you keep the gospel, the person, the work of Jesus in your heart? Let me end this way. Stay in this text. Jesus' unique and special relationship and intimacy with the Father is something that Jesus continued throughout his ministry. If you read the gospel according to John, Jesus is constantly talking and praying to the Father. This unique relationship, John chapter 5, is a great passage, a great chapter to see this unique relationship. John chapter 5, verse 19, listen to this, family. Jesus said to them, the religious leaders of that day, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For, listen, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. All that God does, the Son does. Can anybody else say that ever in all of history? Absolutely not. They understood that relationship. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 18, right before that, this is what it says. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, working like the Father works, but he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. See, the intimacy, the mission, 
The purpose, the plan that Jesus had with the Father is what drove the Jews and the Gentiles and everybody in that day to participate in the crucifixion of the perfect spotless Lamb of God, one with the Father. I'm his son. What he does, I do. And you see the, 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 the deity and the beauty and the glory of this relationship like no other. In fact, we read in the gospel according to Mark chapter 14. That darkness came over the hill called Calvary. And for the first time and for the last time, Jesus addresses the Father, not with this intimate relationship, this title, this designation, Father, but once and only in all of Scripture, he says, my God. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word of God cries out Psalm 21, 22 in the most excruciating pain. And we'll never fully understand this. We'll never fully know is a mystery what Jesus had experienced in that moment. But what we do know is this, that even though the eternal Son of God shared eternal communion, communion and intimacy with the Father, that somehow in that moment was broken. It was fractured. Why? Because something entered into the relationship while he was on the cross that had never entered into the relationship before and never will. In eternity past, eternity future, and that is sin. Jesus didn't sin, but he became sin. And that is why the relationship was ripped. And he can cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake he, the Father, made him Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did not cease to be God, but lost for a season as our sin offering, this intimacy relationship where he cried out, Father, he cries out, my God. And when it was over, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But during that moment when our sin and our filth and our shame and our rebellion was placed on the spotless, perfect, sinless Lamb of God, three hours of darkness overtook in the earth, giving the ominous impression that the domain of darkness had conquered Jesus. But in fact, it was Jesus in that moment drinking the cup of wrath so that we might be forgiven through his suffering, dying in our place. Jesus was forsaken because we deserve to be deserted. He endured the darkness and abandonment and judgment so we don't have to. He was forsaken so that we can be forgiven. Jesus went through the darkness so that we can have light. He was condemned so that our sins can be forgiven. That's how God's wrath can be replaced by grace. It is through the perfect, spotless God-man's sacrifice in our place for you and for me. And we see it demonstrated in the intimacy of relationship that in that moment, your sin was placed on Jesus. My sin was placed on Jesus. That's what this table is all about. The band can come up and we prepare for communion. Do you realize, family, that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. Yes, there's some mystery in the incarnation, incarnation, but what we know is that he identifies with you. He identifies with me. He knows humanity. He became man. And he lived the perfect life you could never live. He died an atoning death that we don't have to die. Because the spotless, sinless Lamb of God lived that life and died an atoning death. Let that be an encouragement to you. 
this morning. And if you've never trusted Christ, completely laying down your will for his, turning from your sin, doing what you want to do, when you want to do it, and turning to him and saying, Lord, you're the Savior, you're the Lord, you're the King, you're the ruler of my life. I trust you went to the cross. I trust you died for my sins. All my stupid, silly, rebellious, dumb decisions I've made, you purchased them on the cross, and now I want to follow you all the days of my life. Have you ever done that? If you've done that and you're a Christ follower, the table's for you. The band's going to play. We'll spend some time confessing, repenting, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But if you're not a follower of Christ, it's for followers of Christ. We're glad you're here. We love you. We're, we, we want you to keep coming out and keep hearing the gospel. Maybe you're like Mary. I'm not really sure. Keep coming. But the table is for believers. And as the band plays, as we sing, as we celebrate, as we worship, as we confess, as we repent, come up when you get a when you get a moment, grab the elements, sit down, and then I'll come up and lead us through taking the elements together. Trust him, family. This story's here for a reason. He lived that life we could never live and died a death we should have died in our place. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this story. In contrast to other stories that are out there that we know are not from you. And Lord, we thank you that we can see and I hope, Lord, that we can identify to some degree with this child that was born and yet recognize that he is sinless, we are sinful, and that God, you, had raised him up to be about the Father's business on mission to seek and save the lost, to die as an atoning sacrifice, to rise from the dead. And to give life for all those who call upon him. We pray, God, that as we take communion together, we'll call upon you in spirit and in truth. May you help us to grow in our love and adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen.